And good morning, church. So today we are reading from the book of Colossians, chapter number one. And we are going to be reading from verses 15 through 20. And you can find it on page 983 in the Pew Bible. So Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christiani. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you're all doing all right. If you uh, had a New Year's resolution of I'm going to start going to church, and this is your first time at church, this is our first time at church in this new year, so we're all in it together here heading out into the new year. So good to have you all here this morning. And uh, this morning, we start a new sermon series to mark the new year called Held Together. And the title of the sermon series comes from verse 17 of our passage that was just read for us this morning. And in him, all things hold together. Now, normally, when I'm starting a new sermon series, I'll give an introduction to the sermon series, and then I have to give an introduction to that morning's sermon, then I got to preach the sermon. It gets to be a lot. So this morning, we're going to just combine them all into a single thing because this morning's text is the sermon series introduction. So we're going to kind of try to kill two birds with one stone this morning. In verses 15 through 20, Paul is going to assert some things about Jesus that seem on a quick reading to be counterintuitive, to be even opposites. And yet these seemingly opposite realities are held together in the person of Jesus. So as we unpack this text this morning, exploring this idea of being held together from this passage, the focus of our sermon series over the next seven weeks will hopefully emerge. So I want to walk through this text. This is how we're going to do it this morning for those of you who like to keep score. We're going to, I'm going to walk through this text and then we're going to have a Short historical interlude, for, so for all of you history majors who like that, you can just uh, stand by for that exciting time. And then we're going to finish off the text, and I'm going to uh, close with a point of application from this passage of Scripture. So teach the text, interlude, historical interlude, and then we'll do a point of application. And then we'll finish out with communion this morning. All right, so without any further ado, let's get into our text here in uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you uh, still have your Bible open in front of you, great. If don't, you can uh, get back to that passage. But a quick word about the context here. The book of Colossians 
was written by the Apostle Paul. We've been interacting with Paul quite a bit over the last number of years in our 2 Corinthians sermon series. But unlike the church in Corinth, which Paul was the founding pastor of, the church in Colossae, uh, Paul was not the founding pastor of. One of Paul's traveling companions, Epaphras, uh, had gone to Colossae and planted the church there. And so the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Colossae. He's never been there, had never met these folks, but he wants to let them know that he's for them, he's encouraging them, he's supporting them, and he's going to give them some instructions then in this letter this of Colossians about kind of the important things that they should know about the faith. And early on here in chapter 1, Paul begins to recount the significance and uniqueness of Jesus. This is one of the very first things he wants these new Christians to know. So we're looking here in verse 15 as Paul is talking about the uniqueness of Christ. Now remember, as we move through this passage, we're, we're trying to identify or keep in mind this idea of opposites held together. So in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this verse is sometimes used by semi-Christian sects, some, some, uh, sometimes the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses, to teach that Jesus is only a creature, even if he's the first and most important creature. He's the firstborn creature of God. Now, that's not a right interpretation of this text. Let me tell you why. In the, in the first century... The term firstborn was a technical term. It was a legal term that designated who, which one of the sons would inherit the property rights of the family. Now, typically in the ancient world, the firstborn son was the one with the firstborn title and the firstborn rights, but that wasn't always the case. Sometimes the firstborn title could be passed down to one of the other children. So if you can think back to the story of Jacob and Esau, which is back in the Old Testament, but uh, still carrying some of the same idea. Esau was the literal firstborn son. Jacob was the secondborn son. But Jacob swindled Esau out of the firstborn birthright and became the technical legal firstborn son. So when Paul is using the language here of firstborn, he's using the language firstborn with reference to Christ in a technical legal term to say that Jesus is the heir of all that God has made. God has created the entire world. Jesus, as the literal, even if supernatural, son of God, is the heir of what God possesses. So rather than verse 15 being a statement about Jesus being a creature, it's actually a statement about Jesus' divinity. He is the son of God who inherits all that God possesses. So the son of a wolf is a wolf, the son of a man is man, the son of God is God. And because Jesus is God's son, he is given the title firstborn by Paul in this passage with respect to creation. Everything that is God's belongs to Jesus. So the fact that Jesus is called the firstborn is actually a very strong statement when we understand the context about Jesus' divinity. But now look down in verse 18. Paul says that Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. And the Greek text literally reads, firstborn out from the dead. Paul is referring to the fact 
that Jesus was the first person raised up out from the dead, from the realm of the dead, never to die again. Now, there have been other people who have been raised from the dead. Jesus had raised other people from the dead. The apostles had raised people from the dead. But all of them had died again. They had not been raised out from the realm of the dead. The whole world had become, through sin, the realm of the dead. And we could sort of bob our heads above water for a little bit, but eventually all of us get pulled back down into death. But Jesus came down into death entered it fully, and then rose back entirely out of the realm from the dead. He is from the realm of the dead. But implicit within the truth that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is the fact that Jesus died. Now, the divine nature doesn't die. The divine nature can't die. Only creatures can die. So when we put verse 15... And verse 18, together, we get a somewhat counterintuitive picture of Jesus. Jesus is God's son, the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. Jesus died, verse 18. Somehow Jesus, the immortal God, who is life itself, also died. Now, those are two truths that we, in our natural way of thinking, are not immediately inclined to try to hold together. And yet, somehow, they are held together in Christ. It would be much simpler to say that Jesus was fully God and he didn't die. Or to say that Jesus was fully a creature and he did die. But to say that he was fully God and that he fully died, those are two realities that take us deep into the mystery of Christology, which brings us to our historical interlude and the Nicene Creed. Many churches say the Nicene Creed every Sunday. Maybe you grew up in a tradition like that where you would recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday. We don't recite it every Sunday. We recite often parts of it around baptism or the Apostles' Creed. But depending on what kind of church you grew up in, the Nicene Creed may be more or less familiar to you. But for many of you, you don't really know much about the Creed or where it came from or why it was written. So let's just talk a little bit about that and how this connects back in to Jesus holding together divinity and death at the same time. The Nicene Creed, in the formal uh, the final form that churches recite today comes from the end of the 4th century. So you may have noticed, as we recited it, that most of the creed is about the Son. The Son receives more attention in the creed than the Father and in the, than the Holy Spirit, baptism, remission of sins, and the resurrection of the dead combined. So why was the creed so attentive to the nature of the Son? Well, it was because the revelation of God in the person of Jesus had landed in the world quicker than the church's capacity to speak properly about the Son. The idea of God incarnating into the world, that was not an expected or anticipated reality of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. So the church knew what they were looking at, but they didn't know how to put it in terms exactly. Like a newborn child with his mother, the church, 
And in this illustration, you can think of the church as a newborn child. The church truly knew and loved and experienced the son's saving power and care. But like a newborn child, it took some time for the church to grow up enough to learn how to speak about the son that it knew and loved. That Jesus was God's son, God's Messiah, God's word, God's image, God's wisdom, God's power through whom all things were made. The scriptures teach this and the church affirmed it right from the very beginning. These are the apostolic writings. That's what we're reading here in Colossians chapter 1. But exactly best how to articulate the son's relationship with the one true God of Scripture, well, that required some further reflection. If the Son was the Son of God, how was he also the Son of Man? And if he was the Son who was the mediator between God and man, then was he truly, fully both God and man? Or did he sort of split the difference between the two? In what sense was the son the same as the father? And in what sense was he different? And then most pressing that provoked the church's bishops and theologians to get together to write the creed, how could Jesus be both the immortal God and the crucified man? Now, none of this was immediately clear from just a simple surface reading of the New Testament. So take John's gospel, for example. John uses the term logos, or word, to refer to Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The term logos, or word, was associated with divine identity in Greek philosophical thought. So that was a point in favor of Jesus' divinity. But John also used the term flesh or sarks to refer to Christ. So just a few verses later, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that term flesh or sarks had the exact opposite association in Greek philosophical world. So that was a point seemingly against Jesus's full divine identity. Or again, in one instance, Jesus says that he and the Father are one in chapter 10. But then just four chapters later, he says, the Father is greater than I in John 14. So this sort of back and forth tension can be seen all throughout the New Testament. But it wasn't only or even primarily because of scriptures that the picture was complicated. A big part of the reason big part of the reason that the church's theologians had to feel their way forward carefully on this issue was because of the limits and the constraints of Greco-Roman pagan philosophy. So during the first three centuries of the church, Greek philosophy was the reigning intellectual paradigm of the Greco-Roman world. Greco-Roman philosophy gave intellectuals the words and the concepts that they used to talk about abstract thoughts particularly as it related to the God or gods and human nature and other creaturely natures. And so it took a bit for the church to figure out what parts of Greek philosophical concepts and terminology worked with Christian theology and what parts didn't. 
And they were so accustomed to speaking in the language of Greek philosophical thought that it took some time, the better part of the third century, fourth century rather, to, to navigate and disentangle Christian theology, biblical Christian theology, from the Greek philosophical theology. So that's a long and fascinating story, at least it's a long and fascinating story to me, but it's too long and fascinating uh, for this sermon this morning. So let me give you the punchline of what they figured out. What they figured out was the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the punchline that they figured out. Nicene theology affirms that the Son is an eternal divine person who now, because of the Incarnation, simultaneously and fully possesses two distinct natures, his original eternal divine nature and then his adopted or incarnated into finite human nature. So he's not half God and half man or half finite, half infinite. He's fully divine and he's fully human without mixture. And the Nicene Church Fathers pointed out that when one is reading the Scriptures, one has to be attentive to how the biblical author is speaking about the Son. Is the biblical author speaking about Jesus' divine nature or is the biblical author speaking about Jesus' human nature? Because in his divine nature, Jesus is one with and equal to the Father. In Jesus' human nature, Jesus is less than and unequal to the Father. So the reason I took us on this riveting historical interlude was to make this point. Jesus holds together two things that are seemingly opposite, and he holds them together at the same time. He is the God who lives with unending life, and he is the man who died a temporal death. He is the creator of every creature, and he is the creature that he himself has made. He is the victor over death. He is the victim of death. He is the master of all. He is the servant of all. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And this Christological tension is what we're seeing all throughout Paul's portrayal of Christ here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Really, it's all throughout all of Paul's writings. But Jesus is the firstborn of all that God has made. And at the same time, he is the firstborn from out of the dead. He holds together, Paul says here in this passage, the visible and the invisible, the creator and the creature, heaven and earth, life and death. We could get that all out of just this one passage. If we moved into the rest of the New Testament, further into Paul's writings and beyond, we could see how Jesus holds together joy and sorrow, Jew and Gentile, grace and truth, justice and mercy, slave and free, male and female. In Christ, God holds together what belongs together, but left to itself would try to bifurcate and pull apart. And what we'll be doing in the coming weeks is showing how Christianity in Christ and because of Christ uniquely is able to hold together realities that are seemingly opposite to each other, that often get bifurcated by our culture at large, but that can only thrive 
when they are paired together in a Christological way. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be teasing out the various ways that this Christological substructure substructure supports and undergirds the church's missions and practices, not just Calvary specifically, though we'll look at that, but also just the church in general. I mentioned in the fall that I'll be preaching some sermons this year on baptism and communion, and we'll get started with that here in this coming sermon series. So we'll look next week at the way that baptism holds together dying and rising. And then the following week, we'll look at how communion holds together both joy and sorrowing. And then the following week after that, we'll look at how Christ holds together all the sorts of left-right tensions that are able to survive and thrive in the Christian habitat that otherwise are not possible. So Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, black, white, complementarian, egalitarian, progressive, conservative, all the things that our culture would yank apart and then atrophy, or they become rabid or rancid left to themselves, are held together in Christianity in a way that provides an opportunity for them to flourish. And then we'll finish out this series with a couple of sermons that show how Jesus and his love is at the very center of all of these things that are, and that his love animates and holds together church's programming and the church's mission. And that'll be... Uh, probably more specific to our situation here at Calvary. All right, enough of the sermon series intro. I want to finish off this morning by highlighting one aspect of this basic insight and apply it to our lives. And I'm going to draw it from verse 20 here in our text. At the end of verse 20, Paul says that Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. If you've been around Christianity for a while, that the idea of Jesus making peace through the blood of his cross may sound fairly commonplace. We, we talk about it so much that we can lose sight of the significance of what we're really saying there. But peace by a bloody cross is part of the same Christological tension that we've been talking about. Think with me for a moment. All of us want peace in our lives. We strive for peace. We chase after peace. We crave peace. And the reason we want peace or the times in our life where we most want peace, are most acutely aware of our need for peace, is when our lives are full of pain, suffering, and conflict. And whether that's physical, psychological, just even within your own head, or emotional, Whatever it is. And yet here Paul is telling us that God has granted us peace through the blood of a cross. The first century's archetype of pain and suffering and conflict. Being Christians and imbibing the Christian worldview, we can, in not ununderstandable ways, we can romanticize the cross. We wear them around our neck. We hang them in our churches. They become for us a symbol of hope, maybe even a symbol of resurrection. And and the cross is that. It should be that. But we can lose sight of how the, the first century world would have thought about the cross. The Roman Empire invented many ways to torture its most despised criminals. But the cross was the apex way that the Roman Empire 
tortured and condemned and crucified and put to death its most despised criminals. So the idea that Jesus would bring peace through a bloody cross, that would not have made sense to people just starting out in the Christian life or just being introduced to the idea of the gospel. That would have been a shocking reality. And we should let it sort of shock us as well. The one thing that seemingly stands most opposed to the peace that every human being seeks, pain and suffering, Jesus took upon himself in the cross. And through it, he secured our peace. Because Christ is able to hold together pain and peace in his own person. And this union of pain and peace in the person of Christ, it lies at the very heart of the gospel. We believe when we were trapped in pain and the suffering and the conflict of our sin, when we had made ourselves enemies of God, when we had earned the condemning justice of God, Jesus took upon himself our pain and our suffering and our conflict our condemnation, and in doing so, he released us from guilt and ushered us in to peace. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the same basic point, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Christ's capacity to hold together the peace of God and the pain of the cross. It's the basis of our very salvation. But the amazing thing about Jesus' cross is not that it's merely something he did for us out there that we can point to and talk about as an idea or an event. It is all of those things, but In our union with Christ, we too become able to hold together peace and pain. Last week, one of our dear congregants, we had a moment of sharing. If you were here last week, one of our dear congregants in the service shared about how last year had been one of the most difficult and painful uh, years of her life. Maybe the hardest year of her life, she said. And yet, she also said that it was one of the best years of her life because she came to understand and to know the love of God in ways that she had never experienced before. I've met so many of you here at Calvary that have said some version of that same story. I don't have time to tell you of all of the people here at Calvary who have testified to me over the past few years that same basic truth that at one of the lowest points, one of the most difficult points in their lives, the points most full of pain and suffering, they also experienced at the exact same time some of the greatest joys of their lives in Christ. Because it's only in Christ that both peace and pain, two things so opposite from each other, can be held together. And if you have tasted of the goodness and kindness and love and grace and peace of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus in the gospel doesn't just give us things. He gives us himself. And to have him is to have everything. 
is to have peace and love and joy and hope. Some of you are facing really difficult moments of pain and suffering right now. And as you look forward into 2024, it's not a year full of ease and comfort. Life is very hard. Maybe there are some really difficult challenges, painful challenges that you are facing this year. And you naturally crave peace and calm in your life. We all do. You naturally crave peace and calm. And so because of that, you naturally turn away from pain. And that's understandable. We should, if we're able, turn away from pain, flee pain when we can. But but even more than that, we should flee to Christ because we won't find peace by fleeing away from pain. We will find peace by fleeing to Christ, who is the peace of God. So many of us in our lives, when we experience pain and difficulty, we want peace so bad that we just try to run away, run, run away from pain, but we don't always run towards Christ. And why don't we run towards Christ? Well, sometimes we don't run towards Christ because we catch a glimpse of him on a bloody cross. And that doesn't look very peaceful. And what we want is to be free of pain. And we see his pain, and so we turn away from him. But he is the one who can hold together peace and pain. Fleeing away from pain will not bring you peace. But fleeing to Christ will bring you peace. Jesus is our peace. Peace in the midst of calm. That's easy. Peace in the midst of pain. That's Christian. God calls us as Christians to costly love and costly morality and costly self-control and costly self-denial. And we cannot follow the path that God has marked out for us without cost. And at times that will be painful cost. But we don't need to flee the cost because God calls us at the same time to Christ who is eternal life and endless joy and never-ending peace and unimaginable, infinite love. Jesus has fully entered into the experience of our human pain and our human suffering. And as a consequence, he is able to lead us fully into what he is, grace and peace. He gives us himself so that we can possess him in all that he is. 